Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Saturday, January 21st, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Adam Clark. And I'm Scott Wallace with today's headlines. An investigation fails to identify the source of the SCOTUS draft leak. Google's parent Alphabet says it will cut 12,000 jobs. Germany comes under more pressure to provide tanks to Kyiv. The IMF chief says the global economic outlook is less bad than feared. Usain Bolt loses $12 million in an alleged scam. Police and protesters clash in Peru as thousands try to take Lima. India denounces a BBC documentary on Modi's alleged role in the Gujarat riots. Trump and a lawyer are fined nearly $1 million for a lawsuit against Clinton. A U.S. judge orders Boeing to be arraigned on 737 MAX fraud charges. And a new program lets private citizens sponsor refugees in the U.S. Our top story, the Supreme Court is unable to find the source of the Roe v. Wade overturn leak. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Forbes, NPR Online News, The Daily Wire, PBS NewsHour, and Business Insider. On Thursday, the U.S. Supreme Court issued a report on its investigation into the leaked draft opinion of the court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade last year, stating that they currently have not identified the individual responsible. The eight-month investigation, conducted by Court Martial Gail Curley, involved interviewing 97 court employees and hiring forensic experts to track who had access to the draft. Justice Samuel Alito's draft opinion in the Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization was leaked in May of 2022. Alito says the leak put the majority justices in danger of being assassinated since it could give people the idea that killing a justice could prevent the decision. The leak was published by Politico and is the first time an entire opinion has become public before the court was ready to announce it. The investigation concluded that it was unlikely that the court's information technology systems were accessed by an outsider. The court, in a statement accompanied by the investigation's report, called the leak one of the worst breaches of trust in its history, as well as a grave assault on the judicial process. Scott, thank you for laying out the facts of that story. Here on the Improve the News podcast, we like to separate the facts from the narrative spin. You just heard the facts, and we're going to start off with a right narrative spin provided by the Epoch Times. While some claim this leak was intended to create a public backlash, and others maintain that the intention was to ensure justices reconsider reversing Roe v. Wade, it is clear the purpose of the leak was an attack on conservative judges. This is a stain on the entire system's integrity. And we have a left narrative from Bloomberg Law. Public opinion over the Supreme Court has been damaged in recent years by the politicized appointments of conservative judges making morally questionable rulings. With too many personnel having access to the document, This mystery is unlikely to ever be solved. How do we know the leak didn't come from those with right-leaning ideology? How do we know? Ending with a question is, uh, you don't usually want to be intrigued by your narratives. You want to to get the the information. Yeah, um, very right. This leak could have come from anywhere. Um, Well, then you start to, well, then you start to think about false flag operations where, you know, someone let it out so that they would think the other side let it out or, you know, who knows? I mean... I think we have a major document security issue in our federal government. I think that is the consistency theme in the story is that they've got to plug in some plug up some holes. Want to help us improve the news? 
go to www.improvethenews.org forward slash pod. Take a quick survey and tell us what you think. Now back to the news. Google's parent company, Alphabet, says it plans to cut 12,000 jobs. And here are the facts as agreed upon by New York Times, Wall Street Journal, NBC, BBC News, and Guardian. On Friday, Google's parent company, Alphabet, announced that it will be cutting roughly 12,000 jobs, or 6% of its workforce. This is said to be the company's largest ever round of layoffs and follows job cuts at other technology companies in recent months, including Microsoft, Amazon, and Meta. CEO Sundar Pichai announced the layoffs in a memo to Google employees. He cited the economy as the reason for the cuts, saying, We hired for a different economy reality than the one we face today. Impacted U.S. employees will receive at least 16 weeks' salary and severance, as well as their 2022 bonus, paid vacations, and six months of health coverage. The layoffs are expected to span across the company, impacting many different product areas, functions, levels, and regions. The company also owns YouTube and the Android mobile operating system. Thanks for those facts, Adam. We have an establishment critical narrative from the BBC. The recent layoffs in the tech sector highlight these companies' irresponsible hyper-growth. Following the pandemic, tech companies like Alphabet, Meta, and Microsoft hired in great numbers at an unsustainable pace, and now a change in the economy is causing them to lay off many employees to rectify their mistakes. And there's a pro-establishment narrative written by Reuters. There are many reasons why the company needs to cut jobs, not just post-pandemic overhiring. Ad growth is slowed, and the company is facing competitive and regulatory threats. The tech sector is not immune to economic turbulence, and recent recession fears are impacting many industries. While these layoffs are unfortunate, they are not entirely the company's fault. As weird as it is to think about it, we're still kind of in early days on in the tech industry. Uh, when you're, you know, when we look back on all of this, it's this might be, you know, the first of many contractions that that tech has over the course of you know centuries or whatever. When when is going to be the the height of the tech? It, it, will there will there ever be a height of the tech industry? Well, you won't know it's the height until after it's already passed. You know, that's the that's the problem with with the peak of things. I so, think when the when the when the computers and the robots start taking over, we've reached the height. Well, who says they haven't already? I'm sorry, my computer shut off. What? <laughs> Our next story, day 331 of the conflict in Ukraine, where pressure is heaped on Germany to provide tanks to Kyiv. And here are the facts, as agreed upon by the Associated Press, President Zelensky's official website, ABC News, MSN, The Guardian, and TASS. Germany faced mounting pressure to commit its coveted Leopard 2 tanks to Ukraine as U.S. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin hosted Western defense ministers at America's Ramstein Air Base in southwest Germany on Friday. German Defense Minister Boris Pistorius, who met with his U.S. counterpart Austin on his first day in office, has told German broadcaster Ard he is pretty sure we will get a decision on this in the coming days. Ahead of this meeting, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky singled out Germany for its hesitance to provide the tanks or allow willing countries to re-export them. Now we are waiting for a decision from one European capital that will activate the prepared chains of cooperation on tanks, he said adding that he expected powerful decisions to be made at the Ramstein meeting. 
Following Zelensky's address, the Biden administration confirmed a $2.5 billion military aid package that included 90 striker armored vehicles and 59 Bradley infantry fighting vehicles, as well as 350 Humvees, 53 mine-resistant vehicles, and a number of air defense systems, but excluded any U.S. M1 Abrams tanks. Addressing the Ramstein meeting on Friday, Austin said, Russia is regrouping, recruiting, and trying to re-equip. This is not a moment to slow down. It's a time to dig deeper. The Ukrainian people are watching us, he said, without making specific reference to tanks. Polish Prime Minister Matusz Morawiecki further added pressure on Thursday by stating that, quote, consent was of secondary importance when it came to his country's re-exporting of German-made tanks. We will either obtain this consent quickly or we will do it ourselves, he said. Meanwhile, in his daily call with reporters, Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov described Russia-U.S. relations as probably at their lowest point ever, unfortunately. Russia's ambassador to the U.S., Anatoly Antonov, said that the U.S. policy of aiming to ensure the strategic defeat of Russia is leading the world to a catastrophe. He also called for a change to be made. On the ground, officials from the Donetsk People's Republic said they had taken control of Klischivka, a small settlement six miles or nine kilometers south of Bakhmut, the hotbed of months of fighting in the region. Ukrainian officials reported that four civilians were killed and three were injured in Russian attacks on Donetsk. One civilian was also reported killed and three more were injured in Kherson. Meanwhile, DPR officials reported that two civilians were killed in Ukrainian attacks on Donetsk. Scott, thank you for the update on the situation in Ukraine. We have several narrative spins. The first is a pro-establishment narrative, and it's provided by The Guardian. These meetings must see Germany, which has a unique historical responsibility to uphold the sovereignty and freedom of Ukraine, consent to the use of Leopard 2 tanks by Kyiv. Ukrainians are some of the greatest victims of Hitler and Stalin, and Berlin now has the opportunity to intercede on Putin's war of terror against an innocent people. The whole of the West will judge the choice of Germany on whether it allows tanks to be sent to Kyiv. And we have an establishment critical narrative from TASS. By sending more and more advanced weaponry to Ukraine, America's policy of seeking the strategic defeat of Russia is leading the world to a catastrophe. The U.S. and NATO are increasingly intertwined in this conflict, and if this policy continues, we'll be headed for nuclear Armageddon. Is this the path we should be taking? And occasionally we get a nerd narrative provided by the Metaculous Prediction community, and in this one they say that there's a 2% chance that Ukraine will officially recognize a former Ukrainian territory, Luhansk, Donetsk, or Crimea, as independent before 2024. Now, this is why you shouldn't buy a truck. You know, it's, it's great to have a truck. You can move stuff around, but then you're going to have friends asking you to move every weekend. Hey, you got a truck I could borrow? You got a Leopard 2 tank I could borrow? Well, I like I like how the people that are living close to Ukraine are like, hey, if you ain't got a truck, we're going to use ours. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> I love Poland's answer. They're, they're, like on, they're, they're right next door to the front lines as opposed sure. to Germany, who's got a, you know, a couple countries away. But they're like, oh, hey, Germany, if you ain't going to step in, we're going to use our tanks. You, they can have ours. Yes, yeah, so you might as well just give them your good ones, I guess. Right? Yeah. You can have the new ones or they get our secondhand tanks. Like they say a, uh, a dull knife is more dangerous than a sharp knife. And that's so true. Our next story concerns a report from the IMF chief who says the economic outlook is less bad than anticipated. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Guardian, CNBC, CNN, We Forum, Washington Post, and Globe and Mail. 
Speaking at the closing session of the World Economic Forum in Davos, Kristalina Georgieva, the head of the International Monetary Fund, or the IMF, stated that prospects for the global economy have picked up in recent months, but warned against overoptimism. She argued that while the global outlook may not be as bad as feared a couple of months ago, this, quote, doesn't quite yet mean good, unquote. Global growth for 2023 is being predicted at 2.7%, which Georgina described as not fabulous. The managing director of the IMF also warned on Friday that interest rate hikes by the leading global economies had yet to bite, potentially still increasing unemployment, which governments may find hard to respond to adequately. Georgieva reaffirmed that the war on Ukraine remained a tremendous risk for global economic confidence, especially in Europe, and stressed that the expected economic growth of China may inflame global inflation as other countries begin to tame the issue. The World Bank is forecasting that China will grow 4.4% this year, and some private estimates are even higher, with Goldman predicting a 5.2% gain. Also at the World Economic Forum, the president of the European Central Bank, Christine Lagarde, described 2022 as a weird, weird year, urging countries to stay the course on monetary policy and to ensure that fiscal policy does not make the job of central bankers harder. All right. Thanks for those facts, Adam. We have a pro-establishment narrative on this story from Eurasia Review. While caution and admitting a tough situation faces the global economy reigns supreme, the stance by many at the World Economic Forum was that the future may not be that bad. Recent economic signals have given reason for hope. With luck, growth in the short term may be a reality. And there's also an establishment critical narrative, and that's provided by the World Socialist website. The reality of the World Economic Forum is a devastating socioeconomic system hurtling towards disaster. The ruling elite and their political representatives continue to place the burden of their failing system on the working classes. It is still up to the international community to enact real change in the world, whatever pronouncements of staying the course may come from the forum. And we have another nerd narrative. This one says there's a 50% chance that the world's GDP will be at least 166 trillion U.S. dollars by the year 2025. And that's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. The title of this piece made me think like they were like, yeah, yeah, things aren't as bad. But when you get into the body of the facts of it, they still don't seem too optimistic. Well, when the the best thing they can say is that it's less bad then that's not that's not I great. think they need to work on their cheerleading. You know, cheerleaders don't do too good with like, hey, don't do too bad. I, w- I think you're right. <laughs> Usain Bolt loses $12 million in an alleged scam, according to his legal team. Here are the facts as agreed upon by USA Today, CBS, Fox News, CNN, The New York Post, and The Jamaica Gleaner. On Wednesday, lawyers for world record sprinter Usain Bolt revealed that more than $12.7 million is missing from his account with Jamaican private investment firm Stocks and Securities Limited, or SSL, threatening civil and criminal action if the money isn't returned within 10 days. They told Associated Press that Bolt's account, which once held $12.8 million, now reflects a balance of just $12,000 adding that a serious act of fraud, larceny, or a combination of both have been committed against him, if this is correct. This comes as Jamaica's Financial Services Commission, or FSC, 
announced on Tuesday that it was assuming temporary management of SSL a day after launching an investigation into the investment firm. The chief technical director of Jamaica's Financial Investigation Division told CNN that law enforcement first received complaints about alleged fraud at SSL on January 11th, affecting accounts belonging to Bolt and others. SSL had said it discovered the fraud earlier this month and acknowledged that several clients may be missing millions of dollars, urging all urgent questions to be directed to the FSC and vowing to alert clients of the resolution as soon as possible. In a media release late on Thursday based on preliminary updates, Finance Minister Nigel Clark stated that a number of elderly investors are among the 40 people allegedly defrauded. Scott, thank you for the facts on that story. We've got a couple of narrative spins related to it. Our narrative A is provided by Our Today. This case has already damaged SSL's reputation and it risks affecting Jamaica's entire financial system as it faces a growing trend of young professionals defrauding their employers. If even a national hero like Bolt cannot trust the country's institutions, regular depositors are likely to become anxious and cause a bank run. And Narrative B comes from the Jamaica Observer. Yes, there are questions to be answered, but the public must be sure that Jamaica's government will be fully transparent and leave no stone unturned in this fraud probe. The FSC and its decisions will be included in the investigation as the commission raised issues about SSL's culture of noncompliance and mismanagement of clients' funds in 2017, but took little action. You know, the regular depositors, they really need to be careful. If they start a bank run, Bolt's going to beat them. <laughs> There's no doubt about it, right? Yeah. Well, yes. If it's the 100 meters, yeah. You free, if, that, if that bank run is anything under 400 meters, he's got you. Yeah, no yeah, doubt. Definitely. You're going to lose. You're going to lose. <laughs> And news out of Peru where police and protesters battle as thousands try to take Lima. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Guardian, Al Jazeera, Axios, CNN, Washington Post, and ABC. Clashes between riot police and protesters are reported on Thursday evening in the Peruvian capital after the massive Takeover Lima march demanding the resignation of President Dina Baluarte deteriorated into violence. An estimate of at least 3,500 demonstrators gathered in Lima's historic downtown, with some of them throwing rocks to try to get through police lines that barred them from reaching key government buildings and police officers responding with tear gas. During the scuffles that killed at least one person and injured 30 others, a historic building near San Martin Plaza in Lima's historic center caught fire, but the cause was not immediately known. Thursday's protest which come in defiance of a government-ordered state of emergency, led to violence and damage also reported at airports in the cities of Arequipa, Cusco, and Puno. Demonstrations have rocked Peru since former President Pedro Castillo was impeached and arrested in December after trying to dissolve Congress, evolving into a broader anti-government movement. At least 53 people have died in recent clashes. In a televised speech Thursday night, Baluarte thanked police for controlling the violent protests and vowed to prosecute those responsible while reasserting her plans to bring elections for president and Congress forward by two years to 2024. All right, Adam, thanks for those facts. The World Socialist website brings us an establishment critical narrative. Through its brutal actions, the Baluarte regime forfeited any legitimacy to lead the divided country. 
Even curfews cannot keep impoverished Peruvians from standing up for Castillo and democracy. The fury is justified since it was Washington that orchestrated the coup against Castillo to secure U.S. corporate and geopolitical interests. It's time for U.S. imperialism and its increasingly repressive Peruvian puppet government to accept reality and return Peru to the Peruvians. There's also a pro-establishment narrative provided by El Pai. Baluarte has the right to continue Castillo's remaining term after his failed coup attempt. While most Peruvians supported Castillo's ouster and arrest, it is nevertheless true that Baluarte has so far failed to quell general public discontent and stabilize the situation. While the protests have included acts of vandalism and looting, which no government in the world would stand idly by, Baluarte must now ensure that the security forces crackdown does not escalate further. Otherwise, her days in office are likely numbered. And another GDP-based nerd narrative from our friends at Metaculus. This one says there's a 50% chance that Peru's GDP per capita will be at least $20,400 American dollars in 2030. Wait, a Metaculus group, it sounds like they're planning something. It does. I think Two-Face may have taken over a Metaculus. It's always a 50% chance. Uh, Harvey <laughs> Dent is in charge. Oh, let me flip this coin and see which way the GDP is going to go. <laughs> India calls the film on Modi's role in Gujarat riots propaganda. And here are the facts as agreed upon by OP India, Dawn, The Wire, NDTV, and Bloomberg. The Indian government on Thursday termed a BBC documentary on Prime Minister Narendra Modi, which reportedly questions his leadership during the 2002 Gujarat riots, a propaganda piece designed to push a discredited narrative. Dismissing the documentary as biased and reflecting a continuing colonial mindset, India's foreign ministry questioned the purpose of the exercise, condemning the film's alleged hidden agenda. The maker said the BBC's two-part series titled India, the Modi Question states it examines the tensions between Prime Minister Modi and the country's Muslim minority, as well as investigating claims about his role in the 2002 communal violence that reportedly left over a thousand dead. Meanwhile, British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak reacted to the documentary, stating in the British Parliament that he doesn't agree with the characterization of Modi. The BBC maintains the documentary was rigorously researched according to the highest editorial standards and involved multiple voices and opinions, including responses from Modi's party leaders. Modi, who was Gujarat's chief minister then, is blamed for doing little to stop the sectarian violence in 2002, whose victims were primarily Muslims. Modi denied the allegations, which were later dismissed by India's Supreme Court. Scott, thank you for laying out the facts on that story. We've got a few narratives related to it. Narrative A is written by Indian Express. This documentary can potentially jeopardize diplomatic relations between India and the UK at a crucial political juncture in either democracy. The BBC, which enjoys significant clout with British administrative and quasi-state authorities, must be held accountable for character assassinating a democratically elected leader questioning the independent investigative agencies and casting aspersions on the institutional integrity of the Supreme Court of India. And The Wire brings us narrative B. As Gujarat's chief minister, Narendra Modi was directly responsible for halting or abetting the riots. Unfortunately, he didn't bat an eyelid as thousands of innocents were persecuted on the streets. The climate of impunity created by the state government propelled the rioters to lynch Muslims indiscriminately 
Modi may not have had a direct role in the mass killings, but concerningly, the prime minister still chooses to look the other way as his supporters intensify the calls to turn the country into an exclusive Hindu state. A nerd narrative provided by the Metaculous Prediction community, they say there's a 54% chance that there will be a non-BJP prime minister of India before 2030. Trump and his lawyer are fined $938,000 for Clinton and DNC lawsuits. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Independent, NBC, New York Post, Guardian, and Breitbart. Former U.S. President Trump and his lawyer Alina Haba are fined roughly $938,000 by federal judge Donald M. Middlebrooks in Florida for filing what Middlebrooks suggested was a bogus lawsuit about Hillary Clinton and others. Trump filed the lawsuit in March of 2022 claiming that in 2016, then-Democratic presidential candidate Hillary Clinton, the Democratic National Committee, or the DNC, and others crafted a malicious conspiracy and asserted that Trump's campaign had ties to Russia, which subsequently destroyed Trump's life. Middlebrook said the case should never have been brought and that no reasonable lawyer would have filed it. He added that 31 individuals and entities were needlessly harmed, including former U.S. Department of Justice and FBI officials, to advance a political narrative. The case was dismissed by Middlebrooks in September. In November, Trump was ordered to pay tens of thousands of dollars when one defendant requested sanctions. The ruling said that Trump's attempts were frivolous and amounted to obstruction of justice. Among others Trump sued were former DNC chairman Debbie Wasserman Schultz, Clinton campaign chief John Podesta, research firm Fusion GPS, Christopher Steele, and former FBI officials James Comey, Andrew McCabe, Peter Strzok, and Lisa Page. This was one among several recent separate lawsuits filed by Trump, including against the Pulitzer Prize Board, big tech companies, and CNN. Middlebrooks described him as a prolific and sophisticated litigant who uses the courts to seek revenge on political enemies. Okay, the Democratic narrative on this story comes from Newsweek. Judge Middlebrook issued a scathing ruling as Trump continues to grasp at courtroom straws in an attempt to smear his political enemies. Middlebrooks and the rest of America will see how far the one-time president has fallen as they witness his reaction to not getting his way. And the pro-Trump narrative by the New York Post. We seem to have forgotten that the claims made in Trump's lawsuit have all been established facts for a while now. The DNC did pay British spy Christopher Steele to create a fake Trump-Russia dossier, which the FBI then used to obtain its secret FISA warrant to surveil the Trump campaign. And when the FBI later offered Steele $1 million to prove his claims, he couldn't do it. These are all well-known facts, not frivolous conspiracy theories. A federal judge orders a Boeing arraignment. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Reuters, The Daily Mail, CBS, and Aviation International News. On Thursday, federal judge Reed O'Connor ordered Boeing Company to appear in court on January 26 to be arraigned on a 2021 felony charge after families of the people killed in two crashes rejected a 2021 plea deal. Boeing and the U.S. Department of Justice agreed to a deferred prosecution agreement in 2021 over two 737 MAX airplane crashes. Without involving victims' family members, the agreement granted Boeing immunity. Families say the agreement violated the victims' rights. 
A total of 346 people died in the crashes of a 2018 Lion Air flight and a 2019 Ethiopia Air jet. All MAX jets were grounded for nearly two years, and Boeing had to overhaul the craft's flight control system. Last year, Judge O'Connor ruled that crash victims' relatives are also victims under federal law and should have been consulted before the DOJ struck the deal requiring Boeing to pay $2.5 billion to avoid criminal prosecution. In November, Boeing said it opposed any attempt to reopen the agreement, saying it would be unprecedented, unworkable, and inequitable. The DOJ said it does not oppose an arraignment for Boeing, but it is against reversing the agreement. The agreement required Boeing to pay a $243.6 million penalty, as well as $1.77 billion in compensation to airlines that use the 737 MAX and $500 million to establish a crash victim beneficiaries fund. Scott, thank you for explaining the facts of that story. We have an establishment critical narrative spin, and it's written by Voice of America News. Not only did Boeing commit fraud by misleading regulators about the safety of its aircraft, but it also went behind victims' backs to strike a deal with the DOJ to gain immunity from criminal prosecution. Victims' family members are also victims and should have been consulted before Boeing and the DOJ reached their agreement. Ann Walden, Macht, and Haran bring us the pro-establishment narrative. While the DOJ and Boeing regret not consulting the family members of crash victims, they had no legal obligation to do so. The government investigated Boeing's errors and reached an agreement that holds the company accountable and institutes measures to prevent future tragic crashes. And in our final story, a new program out of the U.S. lets private citizens sponsor refugees. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Associated Press, NPR Online News, Reuters, CNN, New York Post, and Washington Post. On Thursday, the Biden administration announced a new program, dubbed the Welcome Corps, to allow groups of private citizens to sponsor refugees to live in the United States. According to the State Department, five or more Americans could form a group and apply to privately sponsor refugees fleeing violence or persecution to resettle in the U.S. This would complement the role currently being played by refugee resettlement nonprofits. These groups will be required to raise a minimum of $2,275 per sponsored refugee to support their resettlement over the first 90 days in the country. The government seeks to find 10,000 sponsors for 5,000 refugees by the end of the 2023 fiscal year, ending on September 30th. Sponsors will be expected to pass security vetting, create a support plan, and take care of the refugees' basic needs, including covering apartment security deposits, clothing, and furniture costs, as well as finding schools. A consortium of nonprofit resettlement organizations will also provide support services, including expertise and training to the selected groups of private citizens. This comes as, according to the State Department, the U.S. admitted 6,750 refugees from October to December, three months into the fiscal year. For the fiscal year of 2023, the Biden administration set the ceiling at 125,000. All right, thanks for those facts. Our final round of narrative spins kicks off with the Democratic narrative from Forbes. Biden's latest refugee program is forward-thinking and could accelerate lagging refugee admissions in the United States. Allowing Americans to play an active role in the immigration process will enable American citizens to support a critical humanitarian mission. 
Furthermore, a private refugee sponsorship program could reduce government costs and help revive the U.S. economy after COVID. And the Democratic narrative is usually followed up by the Republican narrative, and this one is provided by Breitbart. This isn't a compassionate refugee program. It's another tactic to bring in more new immigrants, a.k.a. frequent Democratic voters, into the U.S. The U.S. has already accepted one million refugees over the past 20 years, most of whom then pursue green cards and eventually citizenship. Programs like this cost Americans billions of dollars a year and, more importantly, inorganically shift the electoral landscape. And the nerd narrative says there's a 50% chance at least 186,000 refugees will be admitted to the U.S. from 2021 to 2024, according to the Metaculous Prediction community. Oh, that sounds like that. That sounds like a challenge. Yeah, that's not a threat. That's, that's a, a promise. promise. Yeah, that's right? yeah. That's, 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 <laughs> I think that's going to happen. Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Saturday, January 21st, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Improve the News, please visit our website, improvethenews.org, or you can download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Adam Clark, I'm Scott Wallace, inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News.